0: This episode of Mayo Clinic Talks is brought to you by National Dairy Council. Since 1915, National Dairy Council is dedicated to research and education of dairy foods. As a nonprofit organization founded by dairy farmers, National Dairy Council is committed to providing science-based education on dairy's nutritional benefits for health and wellness. Learn more at usdairy.com backslash National Dairy Council.
1: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Food intolerance is relatively common. It represents a gut sensitivity to one or more foods, usually resulting in various GI symptoms. A food tolerance is not the same as a food allergy although our patients often consider their symptoms an allergy to a specific food. Food intolerance doesn't usually result in any significant health disorders, and it's usually more of a nuisance to the patient. The treatment? It varies depending on the food involved. The topic for today's podcast is food intolerance, and our guest is Dr. Imad Absa, a pediatric gastroenterologist from the Mayo Clinic. We'll discuss how we determine if a patient is experiencing a food intolerance or a food allergy, the most common offending foods, the mechanism for food intolerance, and how we manage the condition. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Imad, welcome, and thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, let's start I'm going to ask you to describe the difference between a food intolerance and a food allergy.
0: Food reaction or what patients perceive as a reaction to an ingested food span a big spectrum. And food allergy and food intolerance are not the same. They're totally different. When we say allergy, we mean that there's some immune reaction happening inside the body in reaction to most likely consuming or ingesting the food. Where intolerances, for the most part, there isn't an actual immune system activation. An immune reaction to food allergy could be broken into different categories. The most common are either IgE-mediated or non-IgE-mediated, where the intolerances totally depends most of the time on the type of the food distension of the bowel, and the gas production or sometimes lack of enzymes that can help digest the food.
1: So is a food intolerance the same as food sensitivity or insensitivity?
0: That's a a tough question. I think for the most part, the perceived reaction is pretty similar. Intolerances, we have ways of looking into most of those. Food sensitivities are hard to evaluate, and I sometimes tell patients, depends on what kind of reaction we're talking about and trying to understand, is this truly related to what you perceive as a trigger or not? So if we're sitting with our patient in our
1: office and they describe various symptoms following a various meal, how do we determine if we're dealing with a food allergy or a food intolerance? Are there some questions we could ask or timing of the symptoms or any clues that will give us
0: some ideas? Of course. Yeah. So we usually, that's how we get around trying to help the patients and decide which pathway of assessment we're going to follow. Food allergies tend to have a reaction that is pretty clearly connected to a specific type of food you consume. You could have gastrointestinal symptoms or you could have skin rash, you could have difficulty breathing, but the symptoms tend to be Pretty quick after consuming the food, you'll have abdominal discomfort. You could have vomiting. There could be swelling of the face or the lips. And sometimes you'll have what's called urticaria, or swelling and skin rash followed by some difficulty breathing. Those are pretty classic reactions to food allergy and they seem to happen every time you consume the same food. Food intolerances could be a little bit more subtle they could happen soon or they could happen hours or maybe the next day after consuming the food. And they tend to be more like feeling like you feel sick, you want to throw up. Like we call it nausea, but you not you don't end up throwing up. You feel bloated or gassy, a little bit of misdigestion, like your bowels are moving and you can feel that. Sometimes you would feel there's some urgency to run to the bathroom and have a bowel movement. Very, very rarely you'll have any significant skin rash or affect on your breathing or your circulation, like a food allergy can do.
1: Mm-hmm. So with food intolerance, the symptoms pretty much related to the
0: GI system? For the most part, there are cases where people link food consumption to headache, brain fog, not feeling well overall, but most of the things that we see patients for are related to a gastrointestinal subtle type of symptoms that are mm-hmm. Truly bothersome to the patient, but they don't have long-term complications.
1: Sure. Well, I know food allergies can be potentially serious, even life-threatening. Are there any potential complications of food intolerance, or is it, as I mentioned, mostly a nuisance to the patient?
0: There isn't any long-term complication or risk of food in it's mostly cause and effect you know that you consume the food it gives you some unpleasant feeling whether it's a gi or as i said earlier sometimes external gi system but there's truly no known life-threatening complications so you don't need an epipen you don't worry about choking or stop breathing after you consume the food and many of those patients already know that and like you suggested it's just a uncomfortable reaction that they Mm want to Take care off
1: okay let's talk about some of the more common food intolerances uh, what are what are some of the top three or four?
0: Many of the symptoms we see, uh, at least in the GI clinic, I guess in general practice too, is related to common food that we consume. Carbohydrates in general, and if we broke those into a little bit more details, I would say lactose is a very common one. That's one of the most common dealt with food intolerance. In the same category, you could have sucrose slash isomaltase, which is again a sugar that is in fruit, vegetables, and nuts, and sometimes in sweetened food, and both are unique in a sense that you'll have a lower enzyme in your small intestine that you will need to break those, what we call them disacadase because they're built out of two parts and you need to break them into a single part to absorb them. And if your digestive enzyme level is lower, you could deal with some consequences. And the carbohydrate categories too, there's others that we deal with all the time, like simple sugars like fructose. That is common in apples, grapes, watermelons, honey, agave, and uh, sometimes it's added to sweeten things because it tends to be about 20 times sweeter than the regular glucose. So you could see it in a form what's called high corn fructose uh, syrup or fructans, which is another complex carbohydrate in grains, mostly wheat. So all those are in the carbohydrate category and they are common, commonly associated with GI symptoms like pain, discomfort, bloating. Sometimes they present like irritable bowel syndrome. Mm-hmm. Anything other than carbohydrates cause problems? We deal with other reactions to foods like gluten or wheat. I guess food intolerance that we're seeing more and more of, those are people who don't have an immune reaction, neither allergy like IgE-mediated nor immune-mediated celiac disease per se, but they do react to consuming bread and wheat-containing food or gluten-containing food. And it gives them pretty similar symptoms to what we talked about earlier with bloating, nausea, sometimes abdominal pain and diarrhea. That's another common ones. Other ones are sugar alcohols like sorbitol, maltitol, sometimes onions and Garlic, they have fructans. So these are the ones that we kind of look at and discuss with the families in general. Mm
1: -hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about the gluten intolerance. Uh, I see a fair number of patients who claim they have that. At least they develop GI symptoms after eating gluten containing foods, and they say their symptoms are better when they're on a gluten free diet. Do these patients have any of the pathologic changes in the small intestine that the uh, celiac disease patients have?
0: The short answer, no. They don't have any evidence of immune activation or damage to the small intestine like we see with patients who have celiac disease, which would result in small bowel injury if they consume gluten-containing grains like wheat, rye, or barley. There's debate whether the gut permeability, meaning the passage of food back and forth between the lumen and inside the human body in, in the patients with wheat or gluten intolerance. There's a debate about that. There's the the picture is not very clear, but there is no damage that could physically be seen on a test or a biopsy.
1: Mm-hmm. And patients with celiac disease can develop some malabsorption problems. Does that ever happen with
0: patients with gluten intolerance? No, they don't have any problem absorbing nutrients. They have problem dealing with the symptoms rather than having an actual malabsorption or malabsorptive disease, per se. Mm
1: -hmm. And then one more question on this. Do we know if these patients with gluten intolerance are more likely in the future to develop celiac disease or do they stay gluten intolerant?
0: We have limited data and many of those patients don't even carry the permissive genotype for celiac disease. So I, I think... The answer is anybody can have celiac, but I don't think they have increased risk compared to the general population. And this may change with time, but at this point, that's what we tell people.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay.
0: So if we talk about
1: the specific causes for the food intolerances, it really sounds like it varies depending on the specific food. The mechanism doesn't sound like it's the same for each type of uh, food
0: product. No, it varies, absolutely. And it depends on what type of food intolerance. I I think... Very important part of the assessment and trying to determine the possible mechanism or what food intolerance to investigate is taking a very detailed history, sitting down with the patient, try to recall or or make them di- write down the foods and the dates that they had symptoms, so you could pin it down to a specific food category, whether it's a wheat, whether it's a carbohydrate or added sugars or, as I said, um, sugar alcohols. That will help you decide what mechanism to investigate and how can you go around to help your patient.
1: Okay. Are there risk factors for getting a food intolerance? Are are there some individuals more likely to develop this than others,
0: or is it just kind of random? People who have fictitious gastroenteritis, like they deal with transient and fictitious problem that affects their gut and sometimes can result in some local irritation or injury to small bowel, tend to have a little bit higher rate of dealing with food intolerances afterward, either because of their enzyme being transiently low or because of irritating the GI system and the nervous system around the GI system. So people who have like bad gastroenteritis tend to have a little bit of higher rate of dealing with those symptoms. A lot of time, it seems to be transient. Other times it could last for a long time. I would say for the most part, There isn't really a specific reason why somebody would get a food intolerance, except for maybe recurrent infections, Mm -hmm. some frequent antibiotic use that can affect their gut microbiota. But for the most part, there isn't really a clear reason why one person versus another have a food intolerance. Okay. When in a
1: person's life do these typically develop? Is this something that starts in childhood or is it more likely to
0: occur in adulthood? I think this can happen at any time. Truly. Parents are also more cued and interested in their health care of their children and they pay more attention. And sometimes they, as an adult, you can ignore some symptoms where if it's your child, you care more about it. I think mm-hmm. we, we may end up noticing a little bit more in child age because of that, but I think it can happen at any age.
1: Okay. In my case, I'm a geriatrician and I know elderly patients will develop an acquired lactase deficiency. Yep. So that can certainly occur at an older age, certainly not in childhood.
0: It is pretty common. We are all born with a abundance of lactase because we basically are mammals and we are drinking milk for the first one or two years of our life. And then later mm-hmm. on, the amount of milk consumption decreases, right? Like, and then your need for the lactase enzyme is less. And that drop in the lactase level varies between different people. And that's why some people are more sensitive to lactase other than, compared to others.
1: So you, I think you mentioned that these intolerances can go on for a long period
0: of time throughout their life, or mm-hmm. they may resolve on their own after a short period of time. Both scenarios can happen, and we've seen both. And, and And it sounds like if you result or deal with transient carbohydrate malabsorption after infectious theology, you you could recover. And if we have no clear reason, I guess, sometimes it persists to be a long-term problem. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about how to diagnose a food
1: intolerance. I suspect for those where we're considering uh, gluten intolerance, we'd probably need to rule out celiac disease, uh, looking for evidence of malabsorption, maybe even doing an upper uh, EGD. But are there any specific
0: tests that we can use to diagnose a food intolerance, or is it purely history? Good clinical history and exam is the biggest chunk of actually reaching an assessment i think this is what you're dealing with but we do have various ways of looking into food intolerances i can start with the wheat or slash gluten intolerance per se and you were right on you want to make sure it's not a, an allergy like it's not an IgE mediated um, reaction we have a blood work that is called celiac serology testing we test mm-hmm. specific markers in the blood to make sure that your immune system is not activated when you consume gluten and result in small bowel injury With that blood work, we could also test for evidence of malabsorption like iron, calcium, and other vitamins. And many times, if we are still considering GI etiology for your symptoms, we will end up doing either an upper endoscopy or an upper endoscopy with colonoscopy. And that's all depending on symptoms. I also meant to mention sometimes food allergies can cause things other than celiac, like we call them eosinophilic esophagitis or allergy of the esophagus or eosinophilic gastroenteritis. And those are driven for the most part by food allergies, sometimes environmental allergies. And we find those also by endoscopic assessment. So that's a part of assessment. But if you are taking history and your patient says, every time I drink milk, I feel bloated or um, gassy, or if I eat ice cream or cheese pizza, and then, well, that's a lactose intolerance. um, And we basically can either... Implement a dietary change and ask them to avoid lactose or maybe use lactate, or we can do a breath test that looks for lactose intolerance, or we can do sometimes a biopsy of the small bowel to assess enzyme level in their small intestine. And a breath test can be done for sucrose, lactose, and fructans, so all those could be looked at with a breath test. As I said earlier, endoscopic assessment can look for some carbohydrate malabsorptions and exclude other etiologies that give you symptoms that sometimes we attribute for intolerance. And one other thing, a lot of people advocate is basically a challenge, like a like a blind challenge in a controlled environment where you would feed the patients. See, do they really f- develop the same symptoms when they're consuming a food they perceive as a trigger? But we give them placebo. That's hard to do. It's very hard to do. But that has been practiced in many other places.
1: Okay. Well, other than uh, treating lactase deficiency with lactate, are there other treatments we can use in management, or do we basically tell patients just to avoid the offending
0: food? It's a team and a shared process. It's um, the, the provider, uh, most likely a, a knowledgeable nutritionist or a dietitian, and the patient, and we run the options. So for Lactose intolerance, there's lactate. For sucrose isomaltase um, deficiency, there is a sucrate supplement. For other types of intolerances, either you would have to run the options of, are you able to eliminate all those foods from your diet? Is that a doable thing, right? I mean, because some of the restrictions. Some patients tell you, I can't do that. And then you would would end up treating them symptomatically. So they know they're going to have the symptoms. There's no long-term complication. So you manage their symptoms. And having a dietitian to review the diet with the patient and the family help decide, oh, I can't do this. And if I miss this, I'll substitute it with this type of option and make sure that the diet is still nutritious and complete when you try to eliminate some offending foods. Many times, like uh, if we are Recommending a restricted diet like something called FUDMAS fermentable oligo saccharide or polyols, which is a pretty restrictive diet for food intolerances, it, it tried to eliminate a lot of food that we mentioned in our discussion. And then we, as a team, guide them a free introduction, one thing at a time. So we could basically say, it's not clear to me which one of those categories of food is causing your symptoms. We'll start with a bigger restriction and add one thing at a time with gu- guided reintroduction, trying to pin down what's causing the symptoms and help the patient while making sure they're getting still adequate nutrition.
1: Well, I can see how a patient who we diagnose lactose intolerance could develop a you know deficiency of calcium intake if they avoid all dairy-containing foods. So we may yeah. have to pay more attention to giving them calcium supplements. Well, Imad, you've given us some really good information on food intolerance. Can you summarize our discussion, maybe with two or three key points?
0: Adverse reaction to consuming food is a big spectrum that include food allergy, immune reaction, and food intolerances. My advice is to seek an expert opinion before you restrict your diet. Make sure that when you are restricting a big chunk of a nutritious category, that there is a substitution. And not every gastrointestinal symptom or reaction equal or equate a food intolerance or sensitivity.
1: We've been discussing food intolerance with Dr. Imad Apsa, a pediatric gastroenterologist from the Mayo Clinic. Imad, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mail.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.